Well, good morning. I'm Emily. I'm the mission pastor here at CPC, and most of y'all already know that I'm from Louisiana. And um, if you're in Louisiana on a, a Monday night, as we say, and you go out to dinner or you go over to someone's house, it is not unlikely that you will be served red beans and rice for dinner. Yeah, I heard, I heard a whoop, whoop. All right. Back in the day, before washing machines and dryers, this tradition came about to have Monday night red beans. Monday was wash day, and while the usually women were doing the laundry, um, they could put on a pot of red beans with some smoked pork or something like that and have a really delicious, hearty meal a couple hours later in the day. And over time, the tradition stuck because it, not only is it pretty easy, but it is super delicious. And Recently, I heard about a guy that takes Monday Night Red Beans to like a whole new level. His name is Pablo Johnson, and he's a food writer. He lives in New Orleans, and he hosts a weekly red beans and rice meal at his house. And each week, it is a totally different group of about 10 people that end up showing up. He invites different people throughout the week. Sometimes it's folks he already knows. Sometimes it's just a brand new person that he meets. And he talked about how he wanted a way to show hospitality and build community in a way that was super doable. So he keeps it like real informal. Um, it's like a serve yourself, paper towel for napkins kind of deal. And each week the crew gathers around his grandmother's old kitchen table. And it was actually that kitchen table that inspired for him the idea in the first place. Because when his grandmother really wanted to show love and community and hospitality to people, she didn't put them in the formal dining room, but she brought them back to the kitchen at that more intimate, messy place where she could linger over long conversations with people. And so for Pablo, this Monday Red Beans is a ritual of communal informality that is born from that story. It's a weekly practice that helps him become a more invitational person. This is what he said. He said, it's supper, not a dinner party. And that informality helps people be more comfortable and concentrate on conversation. And for me now, it's an easy thing. Once you build up those muscles, it's nothing to it. Once you build those muscles, it's nothing to it. I don't know about you, but there is just something so compelling to me about the way that Pablo Johnson talks about how first it takes practice to develop the habit of invitation in your life. It's like a muscle that you need to build. And second, he talks about how that habit is rooted in and sustained by a bigger story, story of his grandmother's kitchen table. And friends, we're stepping into a new sermon series this week, and it is all about these two things. How are we going to practice putting our faith in action? And how are we going to root those practices in a bigger story that will sustain us as we do them. In this Minnesota summer of 2021 that's hot with weird air quality, we are at a crossroads and so much of life is like tentatively reopening. Busy schedules feel like they're just around the corner and layered onto that so many of us are probably feeling like we are longing for relationship and connection. And so many people out in the world are longing for relationship and connection. But the truth is that a lot of us have gotten at least a little bit 
out of shape when it comes to those day-in, day-out habits of loving our neighbors. And the question is, as we stand at that crossroads, how are we going to rebuild those muscles of invitation so that we can love our neighbors and care for those in need and foster community? And what difference does it make to do it because God first loved us? Faith in action usually is not fancy. It says ordinary is a bowl of beans and rice a lot of the time. But ordinary faith in action can have an extraordinary impact in the world when it's rooted in the story of God's love for us. So where do we begin? How do we know what to prioritize? What's most important here? Well, that is exactly the question that some Jewish religious leaders had one day for Jesus. Uh, they had been debating with Jesus, and Jesus um, had actually been really impressing them with his answers. So they try one last question for him. They say, Jesus, we have so many commandments in our law. What is the most important one? And Jesus answers with a simple but not easy invitation that speaks all the way right to where we are today about the practices of faith and action rooted in a bigger story. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. He says this. First, one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart and all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So a little bit of background. When Jesus answers these teachers of the law, he is directly quoting from two passages in the Hebrew scriptures, passages that come out of the story of the Jewish people's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The first is from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this verse throughout the history of the Jewish people became just like a fixture of morning and evening prayer, sometimes recited multiple times a day, all the way to today. And it's known as the Shema because in Hebrew, the word to hear, hear, O Israel, it is Shema. And to Shema someone or something, it's not just to listen to them, but it's also to pay attention and respond. It's active, not passive. And when what Israel is supposed to hear and respond to is that for them, there is just one Lord, 
a Lord that has loved them and rescued them from their oppressors. And so you can think of the Shema almost um, like that song that we sang earlier, there is no other. Or you can think of it like a, like a wedding vow renewal, like Israel is saying to God, it's only you, it's always been you, it will always be you. And the second passage Jesus quotes is Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And that call to neighbor love in Leviticus, it's real short, but it comes at the end of a very long list of super concrete ways that Israel was called to love and care about justice for their neighbors. And so that means in scripture that The neighbor that you are called to love, it's not just the person that lives next door to you on your street. The neighbor that you are called to love in particular are those that are vulnerable, those that are poor, those that are struggling or needy that are in your area of influence. And so the law for Israel in Leviticus 19 says things like, you're supposed to allow the poor to go behind you in the field and pick up extra sheaves of wheat so that they can eat. Or it says that uh, you're not supposed to accept bribes from wealthy people in court so that things can be fair. Or you're supposed to treat with special kindness people who are physically disabled in some way. And the logic is that the people of Israel are supposed to act with kindness and justice toward their neighbors, whoever they are, because God has acted with kindness and justice toward them when they were poor and sojourning, needy slaves. That's the practices rooted in the story. And so for Jesus, the most important thing here is actually two things held together. Love God, love your neighbor. And these are mutually inextricable. They are two sides of the same coin. And here's why that is important for us today, because a lot of us, I think, tend to maybe do one without the other sometimes. So that's important because it means that to love God, you have to love others. Simple. You have to love others if you want to love God. There's this um, fun, trust me, it's fun, uh, movie called Babette's Feast. It is about this hyper-religious sect in rural 1800s Denmark. Um, I'm sure that description made you want to add it to your queue. Um, It's good, I promise. And this Danish sect is very austere. They are puritanical, kind of. They do devotions every day. They sing very plain songs. They eat very plain food. And they shun any form of like earthly pleasure or joy so they can be more heavenly minded. And their habits as a community seem like they are very focused on loving God, but they are actually terrible at loving each other. Not only are they like super boring, but they bicker and fight, they hold grudges, they cheat and lie to each other, they refuse to make amends. And of course, nobody wants to join their church because even though they seem to love God, they don't love each other well at all. Their lack of neighbor love makes people actually question, is it God that they love? Or are they just loving themselves? James K. Smith says, you could have Bible verses on the wall in every room of the house, and yet the unspoken rituals of your life reinforce self-centeredness rather than sacrifice. But based on the scripture, 
that Jesus is quoting here. To love God and not love your neighbor is an absolutely irrational contradiction. It is impossible to love the God of Israel and be uncommitted to loving your neighbor. Because the God of Israel, their one Lord, he has always chosen to identify with and rescue the neediest of the needy, the lowest of the low. He is a God that rescues slaves. He says he cares for the orphan and the widow and the immigrant. He is faithful to his people when they uh, make huge mistakes. And so to say you love this God means that for those of us here, when we encounter the needy, the orphan, the widow, the vulnerable, our enemies, the way too chatty next door neighbor who doesn't let you go in at night, it means that in their faces, you will see reflected back to you the face of God with an opportunity to love him. So to love this God, you have to love others. But with what Jesus is saying, the reverse is also true, which is, To love others, you have to love God. To love others, you have to love God. You see, Jesus knows that at the core of our very beings, we are made to love. And we want to love something that will satisfy us. And the only thing in the whole world that will truly satisfy our longing for love is God himself. It's what we were made for. And so what that means is that every other love we feel, the love between a parent and a child or a spouse or a friend, as good as all those other loves are, they are just arrows pointing beyond themselves to the love of God that truly satisfies us. But for us, it's possible to get this out of order, to love good things in the wrong way, not like arrows that point to something bigger than themselves, but we can love people as ends in themselves. A mother can love her child as an end in itself, as if that is the ultimate thing that could satisfy her. A spouse can love uh, their partner as an end in itself. The church can love its neighbors as an end in itself. And We take these good but finite people and things in hopes that they will satisfy our hearts in a way that they were never meant to. And this out-of-order loving means that over time, we stop truly loving the other, and instead we start to kind of use them in some way. The mother's child becomes kind of like a prop to her ego. A husband's wife maybe becomes a trophy The church's neighbors become their project. And when we use people, it usually has pretty painful results for everyone involved. There's a story of a ship, the SS Monroe. It was in 1914, and the Monroe had a horrible shipwreck. And investigators uh, were trying to figure out how this could have happened. And what they found was that the ship's compass deviated two degrees off of true north. And that small deviation caused major devastation. And that's what it's like when we try to love people without having our own hearts calibrated to the true north of loving God. We might just be two degrees off loving something that's really good to love, but 
without being rightly oriented to the love of God, the whole thing can go off course. The church father, St. Augustine, he explained it this way. He said, the good which you love is from God, but it is only as it is related to him that it is good and sweet. Otherwise, it will justly become bitter, for all that comes from him is unjustly loved if he has been abandoned. What he's saying here is that in order to truly love others rather than use them, we must also love God so that our hearts are oriented in the direction of the thing that will most satisfy. Because it's only hearts that have been satisfied with the love of God that are truly free to be able to move out in love towards others. So you have to love others to love God, and you have to love God to love others. <laughs> Say it 10 times fast, it's hard. <laughs> um, but this These two realities held together, this is the true north for our hearts as we put faith in action. But going back to the story in Mark 12 for a minute, Jesus is with these religious leaders and he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy and the law from Leviticus, but notice that he's not just quoting them like a to-do list with checkboxes. He's not interested in self-help life hacks. Here. He's not giving them a how-to. Instead, he is reminding them of a bigger story, the story that they are a part of. Just like Pablo Johnson's Monday Night Red Beans grew out of the story of his grandmother's table, Jesus is reminding his conversation partners here of the story that makes love possible in the first place. It's a story that, it turns out, actually doesn't start with how much we love God or how well we are, how good we are at putting him first in our life. It doesn't start with how much and how well we love other people, but it starts with how much God loves us. Because there is no law of love for God's people apart from God's action to love them and make them his people in the first place. Here, Shema, Jesus says, and remember the story of your belovedness. Because to love at all, you must know the story of your belovedness. And here's how that story goes. Just after the Shema, Deuteronomy goes on to say to Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why does God claim this people? Not because he needs to prop up his ego, Not because he needs a trophy and he certainly doesn't need a project. God claims this people simply because he loves them. And this is the story that Jesus came into the world to continue. The story that when we were lost and far more than two degrees off course, loving all kinds of other things besides God and the things that he loves, God did not stop for one second loving us. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, the one who reveals to us the fullness 
of God's love for us, the one who offered back to God a life of perfect love on our behalf. It is in his own flesh and blood that Jesus continued the story all the way to death on a cross. And in him, our one true Lord has claimed us as his own, not because we have anything really spectacular to bring to the dinner party. There are no special side dishes here, but simply because God loves us and he is saving a seat for us at his kitchen table. Friends, you could walk out of church today and you could find all kinds of other reasons to try to be a good person. And you could fill your schedule more than 25 hours a day trying to do that, trying to prove how good and nice you are, striving to love other people. But you will never anywhere else find a story as good as this a story where the transformation that you desire in yourself, the transformation you desire to see in the world doesn't start with your effort or qualification. Instead, it starts with a God whose love takes the shape of a cross for you. So go, love your neighbor because God has made you his neighbor. And go, care for the vulnerable because God cared for you when you were vulnerable. Go feed the hungry because you've gotten an invitation to the kitchen table, to the supper. Friends, everything that God asks of you in loving others is something that he has already done for you in Jesus Christ. If there's nothing else you take away from this morning, take away this. Everything that God asks of you in loving others is something that he has already done for you in Jesus. This is the beautiful story that Jesus is sharing in Mark 12. The most important commandment Jesus has for us is something that he has already perfectly embodied for us. This is the story that makes true love possible. And so what I want to leave you with are two simple, practical ways that, about what it might look like for us to root ourselves in this story and be committed to building those muscles of loving our neighbor. It's gonna take some creativity from you, I'll say that. But first, find one repeatable way that you can root yourself in the story of God's love over the next month of this series. Find one repeatable thing that you can do, either throughout the day or throughout the week that helps you hear Shema, God's love for you. Loving our neighbors is too costly. It's too hard to do it any other way. So maybe it's just 10 minutes of scripture in the morning. I know for me, one of the things that helps me most with this is praying with another person. For some reason, praying with another person and hearing them pray for me helps me begin to feel what God's love feels like for me. Whatever it is, Pick it and stick with it for the next month because our hearts are restless and they need to be continually reminded that it's in God's love that we can find rest. And second, pick one doable, repeatable habit that will help you love your neighbor. Don't pick the hardest thing you could think of or imagine. Pick something like beans and rice with paper towels or maybe 
Greet one new person on your block once a week this month. Or maybe pick the first Tuesday of every month as a time when you are going to have as a placeholder a time to have dinner with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Whatever it is for you, pick one small, doable way that you could disrupt the thousands of ways every day that we avoid that kind of social awkwardness and discomfort for the sake of stepping into something more beautiful. And so because we care about this for you, we want to equip you each week in this series to help you take that next step. And we want to equip you with ways to strengthen those muscles. And so if you look around the back walls of the church uh, by the windows, you will see underneath those signs baskets of $5 coffee gift cards. And during this next song, we would like you to get up and go and grab one of those gift cards and be praying about who is someone that I could invite to coffee? Who is someone whose story I can hear about what the last year has been like? Who is someone that maybe needs to hear the story of God's love for them? Who is someone that I, because I have heard the story of God's love, I could go to them and hear their story? Friends, everything God calls you to do in loving your neighbor, seeing them, inviting them, listening to their story, is something he has already done for you in Jesus. So as you go and pick up a gift card, ask God for a name and do it because he first loved us. Mm -hmm.